The tired air groans as the heavies swing over. The river hollows boom. The shell fountains leap from the swamps and with wildfire and fume, the shoulder of the chalk down convulses. Then the jabbering echoes stampede in the slatting wood. Ember black, the gibbet trees like bones or thorns protrude from the poisonous smoke past all impulses. To them, these silvery dews can never again be dear, nor the blue javelin flame of the thunderous noons strike fear. Edmund Blunden, Teepfal Wood, The Psalm, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 26, Psalm, A Tale of Two Vols, part two, Teepval. So, real quick, this episode is for all of you listeners out there, as is every episode. But it is especially for listener Vince. Thank you for persisting in getting a review posted in iTunes in the true spirit of the BFWWP, Vince conducted several assaults on the iTunes review pages until he succeeded in breaking through and posting his thoughts. Thank you, sir. And thank you to everyone who has recently posted reviews and made starred reviews on iTunes. It really makes a difference, and if you haven't done so yet, I'm told it's even easier to rate podcasts you have subscribed to through the new iOS 11 operating system, uh, for those of you with iPhones. Also, very hearty thanks to listener Diane for becoming a patron on Patreon. Thank you so much for offering your ongoing support. If you would like to join Diane and the other patrons on Patreon uh, and support the podcast with a continuing contribution of your choice, please check us out at patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Patrons there receive early access to all new episodes, transcripts of each episode released, and several other goodies. All right, so last time we were in the shattered environs of Morval village in the southern end of the British Somme sector. Success there led to the downfall and capture of several surrounding villages. Now we're going to move north to reserve armies sector across from the second of our two vols, Teepval. Mighty Fortress Tiepval. The German positions at Tiepval village and the spur it sat on still stood, dominating the Somme battlefield with the views they afforded to the defending army. With control of Tiepval, the Germans had direct observation 
of the north end of Pozier Ridge, where the British were creeping ever closer. They could watch almost all, if not all, British movement to the south, as well as have eyes on Albert to the southwest. To the north, the Germans also had eyes on the area of the River Ancre, which encompassed the previously contested villages of Beaucourt, Beaumont-Amel, and Serre. Direct observation of Goncourt, way up the line, and where the British 56th Division had so tragically bled itself out on the first day of the offensive, was also possible from here. The sighting of Tietval village itself was likely no accident. Sitting on high ground amongst otherwise flat farmland, the village had been built there in order to have good views of the surrounding area. Tietval Chateau, a sturdy manor now reduced to a smoking pile of brick and dust, had been built to where its owners could look out over the lands. For centuries, the de Breda family, the baronial owners of Tietval Chateau, had lived there and watched over the lands and villages in the area, not just for pleasure, but for the fact that they had literally owned all of the land and the villages on it for all that time. A Madame de Breda, widowed, childless, and getting on in her years, had hurriedly left in a chauffeured car as the black smoke and thunder of war crept closer in the summer of 1914. As of the writing of this episode, her fate is unknown. To the Germans then, as well as the British, Tietval was the key to the area. But to the Germans, Tietval had a special importance to them. For one, the German 26th Reserve Division had defended it since the ground had been seized right after Madame de Breda had evacuated. In particular, the Württembergers of Infantry Regiment 180 had held the line at Tietfall. They had been there on the 1st of July to defeat the British attacks and had gone on to fight at Ovier ne right next door. The 180th had since been replenished with new men and was back in its old positions, ready for the next battle. And it was coming. The British had failed on the 1st of July, and they'd failed on the 3rd of September. The Germans knew there would be another fight for Tietval, and that by the end of September, that fight would be soon. The English had pushed them out of the Wonderwork redoubt, clearing a nagging obstacle and opening the way to a direct assault. Behind and to the southeast, the squeeze on Mouquet Farm was ever tightening. With Pozier taken and with the future of defense at Mouquet Farm in doubt, the back door would soon be open to an assault from that direction as well. After the retaking of Schwaben Redoubt from units of the broken 36th Ulster Division, the German trench lines around Tietval had been redug and strengthened. The trenches had been deepened 
and connected with new communication trenches. Redoubts and dugouts were connected to the trenches, creating an interlocking defensive area where one trench or redoubt could easily support another. The ruins of the chateau, as well as the village, were reworked into the defense system as well. The German Sommkampfer in Tietfall would be ready, secure in his trenches and armed with machine gun, rifle, pistol, and hundreds of hand grenades, which by now was the trench fighting weapon of choice. If it came down to it, sharpened trench spades would be another tool in the Sommkampfer's arsenal. The Württemberger men were crack troops and highly motivated to defend a position soaked with the blood of their friends and comrades. But across from them, the British soldier was no longer the eager but raw and inexperienced new army boys from that July morning a million years ago. Nearly three months of constant, if costly, attacks had changed the BEF. The lessons were extraordinarily expensive, but the result was that the men of the 4th and Reserve Armies were now seasoned and adept soldiers who were a match for their enemy. The Germans had always respected the British for their reckless bravery, and now that recklessness had been brutally honed down to make proficient and professional warriors. Arrayed in the line facing the Tietfall and Mouquet Farm sectors were the 18th, 11th, 1st Canadian, and 2nd Canadian Divisions. To briefly highlight one of these units, the 18th was one that stood out for its leadership and training. Led by the capable and competent Major General Ivor Max, the 18th Eastern Division had been relentlessly trained under his command. Max had watched the developments of operations on the Somme and his training focused on making his officers and men innovative go-getters who would take the fight to the enemy with ruthless conviction. It was amongst men like Max's 18th Division that our modern tactics of warfare today were being painfully birthed. So the hour of reckoning was set once again. General Sir Hubert Goff, commander of the Reserve Army, scheduled the attack on Tietval for the 26th of September, just a day after the 4th Army launched its units at Morval. On the 24th, the day began with a mist covering the front. At Tietval, the mist didn't stop the rain of iron and steel that began coming down. The ground rocked, shuddered, rolled. Trenches were targeted for leveling. The ruins of Tietval and its chateau were steadily worked over by the British guns. In the 18th Division's front alone, 100,000 shells would be fired over the next two days. Gas shells were included in that number. To add to the maelstrom, a machine gun barrage was being fired at the same time, 
with the bullets being aimed at German rear areas. Within hours, supplying those Germans hunkering down in the front line became near impossible. Communications became scattershot as telephone lines were cut and human runners had to brave the shell fire and bullets to relay messages back and forth. On the 26th of September, the bombardment picked up in its intensity, getting to the level of drum fire. This was where shells rained down so thick and so fast that individual explosions could not be determined. The unbreathable air was nothing but a roar. Tietval was cloaked in a fog of smoke and dust. Surviving units inside were cut off from one another. They were tired, hungry, painfully thirsty. At 12.35, the bombardment lifted and shifted back as it morphed into a creeping barrage. The Tommies of the 18th and 11th Divisions and their brother Canadians in their 1st and 2nd Canadian Divisions all went over the top. They would be following the creeping barrage, and General Max's men were trained to follow it especially close. The 8th Suffolk advanced across the shell-plowed trenches towards that smoke-covered, body-filled prize, Schwaben Fest, a.k.a. Schwaben Redoubt. The 11th Royal Fusiliers attacked out of Tietval Wood, which was in British hands. The 12th Middlesex aimed straight towards Tietval Village. Six tanks were allotted to the 18th Division for the attack on Tietval, but by the time of zero hour, only one, C5, was functional and could take part. On the far right, north of Corselet, and at the boundary between Reserve Army and 4th Army, the 2nd Canadian Division encountered heavy resistance in the form of counter-barrages. Two tanks in support there were lost, with one ditching and the other taking a direct hit and exploding. The first German line was taken, but little progress could be made past that. On 2nd Canadian's left, the 1st Canadian Division had more success. By 1 p.m., the German front-line trench was cleared. Despite attacks from their left by German bombers and fire to their front, by mid-afternoon, the men of the 1st Canadian Division were on to their second objective, where they largely dug in. On the Canadians' left, the 11th Division had Mouquet Farm as its objective. In the run-up to zero-hour bombing parties of the 9th Lancashire Fusiliers had put themselves at the known exits of Mouquet Farm's cellars and dugouts. The Tommies of the 11th Division had a rough go of it that day. The Germans had bombarded the assault trenches as men formed up to attack. Zollern Redoubt to the north of Mouquet Farm put out devastating fire that wiped out a part of the Lancashire Battalion, hurling hundreds of men to the smoking ground. Tommies of the 8th Northumberland Fusiliers made it to Zollern Redoubt itself, but were cut off there and then chopped to pieces. Nevertheless, in the smoke and screaming and confusion, Mouquet Farm was finally taken. It took smoke bombs tossed down into the cellars, but the Germans down there 
finally surrendered. Things went better with the 18th Eastern Division. The Germans were quickly run out of the frontline trench system. The battle for Tietval quickly became a fight to the death between two skilled foes. Near Tietval Chateau, two men in the same company of the 12th Middlesex, Duke of Cambridge's own, would earn the Victoria Cross that day. The first was Private Frederick Edwards, a temperamental kind of guy who could neither read nor write, but made a great field soldier. Held up by a German machine gun team and with all of his officers dead or wounded, Edwards ran flat out at the enemy and wiped them out with grenades. The advance then continued. The second man was Private Robert Ryder. He also took a situation where an enemy trench was pouring out heavy rifle fire and holding up the British advance. Ryder ran out and at the trench, put a Lewis gun on it, and poured fire into it. It is estimated in Gerald Glidden's book, VCs of the First World War, Psalm 1916, that Ryder may have killed up to a hundred Germans in his mad dash to clear that trench. With his actions, his company's attack resumed. The battle was ferocious. Quote, We met Bosches running about, scared out of their wits, like a crowd of rabbits diving for their holes, recalled 2nd Lieutenant George Cornaby of the 11th Royal Fusiliers. Men were rushing about unarmed. Men were holding up their hands and yelling for mercy. Men were scuttling about everywhere, trying to get away from that born fighter, the Cockney. But they had very little chance. I had the pleasure of shooting four of them before I was wounded in the wrist. After this, everything seems blurred. End quote. Another member of the 11th Royal Fusiliers, a Private Reginald Emmett, told of the assault on Tietval Chateau. We shot anything that moved and dragged ourselves out into the next trench. We had been told to make the, for the ruins of a castle, and dazed and exhausted as I was, I dragged myself to a little hill where there was a pile of stones, all that was left of the castle, I suppose. Here the German machine gun fire became fiercer than ever, just sweeping above the ground. I threw myself into a shell hole, and seizing my chance as the bullets whistled over my head, I slid from shell hole to shell hole into a third German trench where some of our boys were held up. Both 2nd Lieutenant Cornaby's and Private Emmett's accounts come from Peter Hart's book, Psalm, Darkest Hour on the Western Front, a really great introduction to the psalm that goes in-depth just enough for a reader new to World War I and the psalm in particular. Oberstleutnant, or Lieutenant Colonel, Alfred Fischer, the commander of the vaunted German Infantry Regiment 180, told his regiment's story from the other side of the battle line. On 26 September at 1.30 p.m., this was German time, drumfire came down all along the entire line, Tiefval, Serre, Corselet. 
This was immediately followed by an infantry attack in an easterly direction on the southern flank of Tipval. The left flank of the attack, which was organized in waves, was directed against Sector C-7 and the southern part of C-6 at the junction with the road Tipval-Altuyu. As could not otherwise be expected in the event of so strong an attack, the advanced triangle Mauerweg Wallway, C7, Braunerweg, Brownway, which was only defended by a platoon of 2nd Company and sentries from 2nd and 3rd Companies, was lost. The first determined resistance was offered at Braunerweg. The first wave of attackers was almost completely destroyed by rifle and machine gun fire before it even closed up to the obstacle. The second, denser wave flooded to the rear with heavy casualties. Suddenly, an armored vehicle emerged out of Altuyu wood. It was followed and flanked by a third wave, which succeeded in checking the withdrawal of the second wave and assisted by the tank to work its way forward to the obstacle. There, the attack stalled. Attackers and defenders engaged in a firefight. The situation took an unfavorable turn when suddenly the left flank and almost simultaneously the left flank and center of the third company were attacked from the rear with hand grenades. The British seemed to have forced their way into the southeastern and eastern fronts of Tietval and pressed with increasing strength from the direction of the church and chateau to the south and southwest. Attacked from the front and rear and threatened in the flank as well, the third company had to fall back, echeloned from the left on sector C6. The enemy did not succeed in forcing a way via Mauerweg into C6 from the south, but he attacked unopposed from Tietval until, finally, after the toughest defense possible, the barricade at the junction of C6 and Mauerweg had to be pulled back in order to avoid encirclement. End quote. The tank Fisher mentions must have joined the battle after it started. Tikval Chateau had been taken with the help of tank C5 named Creme de Menthe, which crossed no man's land and mowed down all of the German troops it encountered at the rubble heap of the chateau. Once that was done, the tank promptly got stuck in a trench. But again, the tank had proved its worth. The chateau was cleared, and the attack on Tipval continued. A testament to the desperate last stage of the fight for the chateau was given in the Manchester Guardian newspaper on the 27th of September, the day after the battle. The excerpt comes from Jack Sheldon's German Army on the Somme. The exciting adventure of one of our land ships must be mentioned here. On its own responsibility, it had chosen to head for an enemy trench below the village. So it arrived during its lonely advance at a deep and wide ravine, which apparently concealed soldiers. The tank intended to cross this trench in the usual way, but it suddenly got stuck. At the same instant, the Germans rushed out of their hiding places and swarmed around the tank like bees. 
They displayed extraordinary courage. Although the hidden batteries of the vehicle showered them with fire, they attempted with desperate violence to storm the mobile armored fort and to kill its crew. Despite ceaseless machine gun fire, they helped one another to climb onto the steel roof. They obviously hoped to find hatches and cracks in the monster's armor, but they might as well have been attacking a battleship with spades. It was an indescribable sight, this battle of man against machine. The crew on the inside were filled with fury. Not in their wildest dreams had they considered it possible that they might be attacked. These Germans were driven on by blind determination. In the madness of the moment, they were willing to stake their lives. Finally, British infantry attacked and drove the enemy back. End quote. Fighting continued throughout the afternoon, and the British increasingly gained the upper hand. By evening, much of the village had been taken, and the defending infantry regiment 180 was largely destroyed. The German defenders were being taken out too quickly and thoroughly, and by 6.30 p.m., a carrier pigeon arrived at the headquarters of the German 26th Reserve Division. It was from a group of 18 men, stuffed in a dugout and surrounded by Tommies just outside. Only the northwest corner of the village still held out. Perhaps that was where these 18 men were. Private Emmett was in the trenches at the chateau, where he had a horrific but necessary task as he and his mates got themselves ready for whatever may come. We started to get the trench ready to resist, building up the parapet facing the other way round. This meant heaving the German dead bodies over the top, a gruesome job which covered us with blood. This done, we waited through the night. Some explored the dugouts, which were well supplied with drink and cigars, and came up wearing German helmets. Those who had them divided up their rations and tried to get a little sleep through sheer exhaustion. The counterattack never came. The next morning, the northwest corner of Tiefval came under attack, and it was here that 2nd Lieutenant Thomas Adlam of the 7th Bedfordshires, a young and brand new teacher before the war, hey now, earned his Victoria Cross. He was also great at sports. The battle can be summed up in Adlam's award citation. A portion of the village, which had defied capture, had to be taken at all costs to permit subsequent operations to develop. This minor operation came under very heavy machine gun and rifle fire. Second Lieutenant Adlam, realizing that time was all important, rushed from shell hole to shell hole under heavy fire, collecting men for a sudden rush, and for this purpose, also collected many enemy grenades. At this stage, he was wounded in the leg, but nevertheless, he was able to outthrow the enemy, and then seizing his opportunity, and in spite of his wound, he led a rush, captured the position, and killed the occupants. 
Adlam's throwing arm had been the key to victory here, and he had showered the Germans with their own grenades with long and accurate throws that couldn't be matched. By the night of the 27th, Tietval and its obliterated environs had fallen to the grinding British Reserve Army. The Germans had fought like enraged beasts to hold it, and Reserve Lieutenant Kimmich, acting commander of the annihilated 1st Battalion, Infantry Regiment 180, later stated that the heroic defense of Tietval was acknowledged respectfully by the enemy. Back home, the Manchester Guardian duly reported that, yes, it was no easy thing to be able to break the spirit of Tietval. So, Tietval was finally in British hands, 13 weeks later than previously expected. Its loss was a brutal blow to the German army. It was how the Germans would feel just a few weeks later when the French Second Army smashed through the lines at Verdun and took back Fort Douaumont. It was like a piece of Germany itself had been taken from them. The Battle of Tietval and Tietval Ridge continued officially until the 28th of September, but it wasn't like the men on the ground noticed any change. It began to rain heavily, turning the last days of September raw and making the battlefield into a deadly and festering mud pit. The deadly slog set in and continued Tommies of the 11th Division began a slugfest of a fight for Stauffenfest, a.k.a. Stuff Redoubt. The men of Max's 18th Division pushed out of Tietval towards that ugly scar on the blighted and blasted land a mere half-mile away, Schwaben Redoubt. It would be another two-week fight to get there. With Tietval, though, Things had definitely shifted. It was the English who now had eyes over their enemy, not the other way around. Morval and Tietval had shown the dogged German Somkämpfer that they weren't the only hardened vets in the neighborhood anymore. The British army was much improved from July. So, we will leave it there for now. Next episode... We're going to take a look at the war in the air over the Somme, a theater of operations I must admit I have neglected terribly, and I very much apologize to any fans of the air war out there. Okay, questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at www1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, although I will admit I am terrible at checking the emails there, or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook, where I am better. Don't forget that if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, please head over to patreon.com 
slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.